Jesus often surprises me, and I suspect he surprises you as well. I'm looking at my watch because my wife told me to when I get up, so I... It doesn't mean anything that I'm looking at my watch. As I say, Jesus often surprises me as when he ignores tradition and conventional rabbinical dogma and decides to heal people on the Sabbath, even though the religious leaders took severe uh, exception to that or when he flaunts social practices and affirms the value of women and children in an age when not much was said about them. Here in Luke's intimate glimpse of the private Jesus, he surprises me again. Away from the hectic thongs of people always demanding something from him, we find Jesus relaxing in a place of safety and solitude. We don't know how their friendship came to be, but with Martha and her younger siblings, Mary and Lazarus, we find Jesus unguarded with people he loves. In my mind's eye, <clears throat> it's hard not to contemporize the home setting. So I hope you will not be offended by my description of what my imagination sees. Jesus has been directed to the seat of honor, a big recliner in the family room. Mary is poised on the ottoman beside his outstretched feet, facing him, listening to his every word, the disciples have found places of comfort on sofas, or some of them are dozing in the shade of the small courtyard of the home. And in the background, the whine of a hoover ceases, followed immediately by the clanking of pots, the slam of cabinet doors, and the clatter of dishes. As I say, Mary is hanging on Jesus' every word as he recounts for her where they have been and what they've been doing. Occasionally, a disciple will pipe up, tell her what you said to the Pharisees. And Mary would learn not only from Jesus' direct conversation with her, but from what he had said to others as well. Meanwhile, in the kitchen... The banging of cabinet doors has become distinctively louder. And finally, Martha appears. Last names, of course, were unknown in biblical times. But some have suggested that Stuart would have been a fitting last name for Martha. Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart is trying to communicate with Mary using the look. But to no avail, because Mary doesn't look her way. Her eyes are fixed on Jesus, and she's not 
willing to see what Mary might be, I mean, Martha might be asking of her. Martha has become mad. She's not a happy camper. Which is ironic because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is there in her home and she's missing this. She's too worried about the dishes and the meal and the preparation. She's missing it. Meanwhile, Mary sits on her ottoman and enjoys the presence of Jesus. In actual fact, it's worse than I have described. Imagine what preparing a meal for 13 hungry men would have been like in that day. Gathering the firewood, starting the fire, walking to the butchers, roasting the meat, grinding the flour, kneading the dough, baking the bread. You get the picture, don't you? No microwaves or refrigeration in this Martha Stewart's kitchen. Can you blame Martha for being upset? I mean, be honest. In her mind, she's doing all the work while Mary does nothing. Zero. Nada. Can some of you identify with Martha? Finally, Martha's frustration reaches eruption level, and she storms into the presence of Jesus, saying, Don't you care? Don't you care that I'm doing everything all by myself? alone while Mary sits in here doing nothing? Doesn't that bother you? And now for the surprise. Because honestly, I would have thought Jesus might have taken Martha's side. I thought he might say, Mary, she's right. Go help your sister, and we'll talk again after dinner. But no. He offers a rebuke to Martha. Gentle, to be sure, but a rebuke nevertheless. Martha, Martha, the Lord answers, you are worried and upset about many things. Now, before we unpack this further, let's observe, first of all, that the Lord was not commending idleness. He's not blessing inactivity. By the same token, he is not condemning action. In my research for this message, I came across a quote without credit for authorship, but see if you agree. Every church needs a Martha. Change that. Every church needs a hundred 
Martha's. Sleeves rolled up and ready. They keep the pace for the church. Because of Martha's, the church budget is balanced. The church babies get pounced. And the church building gets built. You don't appreciate Martha's until a Martha is missing. And then all the Marys and Lazaruses are scrambling around looking for the keys and the thermostats and the instructions to start a Zoom meeting. We should all appreciate the Marthas whose past sacrifices we currently enjoy. Several years ago, the church where I was the pastor had an historian, a woman by the name of Willie Binken. One day, Willie brought to me a ledger she had found. In it were the names of church members from about 1900. The church was in the process of building a new sanctuary, and these people had made pledges toward building that building. Beside each name was written the amount that the, the person or the family had pledged. And then the church treasurer had carefully, week by week, entered the amount that person or family had given toward the fulfillment of that pledge. These were the Marthas of their age. And we were benefiting from their sacrifices years later. In fact, nearly a century later, it was my wonderful privilege to be the pastor when we needed to build a new sanctuary. There came the time when we had to decide as individuals and families what we believed God was leading us to give. On that Sunday morning when we made our pledges as part of our worship, we came forward to place our pledge cards or our gifts into a receptacle on the Lord's Supper table. Connie and I led the way and then sat on the front pew as church members by family filled the center aisle and came up and placed their pledges and gifts in the receptacle. What amazed us as we watched this procession of fellow church members was the joy on their faces. They were not giving from a sense of compulsion or, or guilt. No one had twisted their arms. No one had made them feel substandard if they didn't give. They came and in joy gave their gifts. The person I remember most was a little girl carrying a Quaker oats box into which she had placed her pennies and dimes and nickels and quarters that she had saved for a long, long time. It was so heavy that her older brother had to lift it into the receptacle for her. I was overcome by her gift. Connie and I just sat there and boohooed. Other sacrifices were larger 
but none was more significant or produced greater happiness in the giver than the accumulation of change in an oatmeal box. A few weeks later, I was on my way from the study to the pulpit to deliver the eulogy for a retired dentist in our church who had died. I suppose you probably surmised that since I was delivering the eulogy. Nevertheless, I was on my way and I was stopped by a man saying, I represent Dr. Stansel's estate and the church is going to inherit about a million and a half dollars. Try being somber at a funeral after getting news like that. And we missed Dr. Stansel, but we were grateful for his gift. Dr. Stansel lived in a modest house in a reasonably nice part of town and drove a 15-year-old Cadillac. No one would have suspected he was the kind of Martha who would give what he did. Yes, Marthas are needed. But these Marthas had also been Marys. They had spent time with Jesus. It wasn't the service that Martha provided, nor the sacrifice she made that was the problem. But without realizing it, she engaged in three problematic activities. First, she began to compare herself with someone else, with Mary. She measured what she was doing against what Mary was doing, and Mary came up the loser in her mind. We are, of course, all prone to do this. We look at what we are doing and decide that others don't quite measure up to our standards. The Apostle Paul addressed this when he said, some measure themselves by themselves. And not surprisingly, they're a perfect fit. Nobody else is, but they are a perfect fit when they measure themselves by themselves. And that's what Martha was doing. She was weary. She was frustrated. And she wanted Mary to be as frustrated as she was. That's overstating, I grant you. But in a sense, that's what she was doing. She wanted Mary to be as burdened by these preparations as she had become. And Jesus, in answering her as he did, refused to allow himself or Mary to be drawn into that kind of chaos. The second thing Martha did was she assumed Jesus was oblivious to her situation. She asked, don't you care? Behind the question is implied, don't you see what's going on? Aren't you aware of my situation? The very question itself indicates that she had already decided that either Jesus was oblivious to her plight 
to the unfairness of the situation or that he didn't care. Again, you and I can sometimes manifest similar tendencies. And finally, Martha presumed to tell Jesus what he should do. Tell her to help me. It wasn't Martha's sacrifice, but her attitudes that warranted Jesus' gentle rebuke. The other question remaining to be asked, however, concerns Mary. What was it in Mary that Jesus commended? Well, we know, don't we? She couldn't get enough of Jesus' teaching. She wasn't a hearer only. She heard his words and internalized them and applied them. We meet Mary again in Mark's and Matthew's Gospels. Jesus again is in Bethany, this time at the home of Simon the leper, where Mary has crashed the party. She kneels at Jesus' feet, anoints them with costly perfume, and dries them with her hair. Judas condemned this as wasteful, but Jesus understood. Jesus understood that this kind of sacrifice came out of the true worship of her heart, that her connection with Jesus prompted her to give, to serve, It came from the depths of a heart that had worshipped. The time she spent at Jesus' feet produced in her the desire to give her best and her all to the Master. As individuals and as a church, we seek to be a blend of Martha's and Mary's. Service is a part of discipleship, isn't it? But service alone degenerates into obligation. And obligation yields to frustration. It can become critical, as it did with Martha. We observe what others are doing compared to what we are doing, and we become self-satisfied or critical. Joy evaporates from such service. What is the answer? Mary shows us the time at the master's feet comes first. That's where we start. Service and sacrifice and giving flow from hearts full of worship. Do you think Jesus loved Martha less because she got her priorities confused? No. It's not so Jesus will love us more that we spend time at his feet. It's so that we will love him more that we spend time at Jesus' feet. 
It is so we will know the abundant life he promised his followers. Our service and sacrifices spring from joyful worship when we spend time with Jesus. Sitting at Jesus' feet today would certainly involve personal devotion times, group Bible study, Sunday school I'm talking about, and, and discerning the Spirit's urgings in quiet meditation as well as in corporate worship such as we are experiencing now. Not many can match the kinds of gifts that I mentioned a few moments ago, but those are exceptions in any church. Every church depends on the Marys and Marthas who have spent time at Jesus' feet, adoring the Savior for the grace he bestows on us. The Marys and the Marthas who give faithfully week by week to the ministries and maintenance of their church, who serve the Lord by teaching his people, who adore Christ by caring for the children, who listen to his words and sign up for vacation Bible school. This is why Jesus commended Mary for choosing the best part, because service by itself doesn't necessarily result in worship, but true worship always results in service, and that kind of service always produces joy. <laughs>